BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. I want to share with you a little bit from the uh, hidden history of Big Brother in America in just a second. Just a couple of headlines, though, of uh, at the top of the hour here of what's going on in the world. China is echoing the lies that you're seeing on Fox News right now and that Putin is telling, which is that Ukraine has bioweapons labs, and uh, that's why Putin had to go in there. You know, what they have are public health labs, <laughs> just like Multnomah County here in Oregon, you know, where they... They keep samples of all the viruses and bacteria that are floating around in, in Portland to track for contagious diseases. The Emmett Till anti-lynching bill passed the Senate unanimously. This is astonishing. Well, it's not astonishing. It's like, you know, finally. But, you know, we've been trying to outlaw, we, you know, progressives in the United States have been trying to outlaw lynching for over 100 years. Since the end of the Civil War, they have been trying to outlaw lynching, make it a hate crime, and finally it got done. And I think, you know, frankly, the Republicans just got shamed into saying, okay, okay, you can't lynch people. And finally, Guy Raffitt, he is the guy, I think he's from Southern California or Texas. Anyway, he traveled to the Capitol building with his uh, AR-15s and, and all kinds of weapons and, you know, was seen just pummeling police officers. He was, you know, one of the energizer bunnies of the the assault on the Capitol. This is the first major trial. It went to the jury. They deliberated for an hour or so. They took a break for lunch. They came back, and very quickly they came back and said, guilty. But we'll keep an eye on that. So that's what's going on. So my new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. I start out the book talking about the fact that there have been times in this country when we had Big Brother kinds of governmental regimes, now I, I break the book basically into two parts, Big Brother in government and Big Brother in, in, in the corporate world, where we had government that was not democratic and that was Orwellian, that was insisting on knowing not just what people said, but what they were thinking, what their opinions were. Um, I use John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, The Women Who Came From Dover, or The Day They Brought the Women From Dover. I forget the title of it, something like that. Which is the story of these three women who had defied the local pastor, the local Protestant minister. They were Quakers. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't go to church. Going to church was mandatory. Talk about Big Brother, right? And so he ordered them tied. This is in the dead of winter with four feet of snow on the ground. He ordered them tied to the back of a cart and, and stripped naked to the waist and whipped. And, and then not only in that one town where it happened in Dover, but then they, the cart dragged them for the rest of the day from town to town through the snow as they were being whipped. Now, we don't have that kind of big brother in America right now, but we once did. The other one, and I've referenced this before on this program because I learned, I, you know, when I did a really deep dive into the history of the South, of the Confederacy, there's probably three chapters about this in the hidden history of American oligarchy. What I learned that I never learned in school, and I don't think most Americans realize, is that democracy died in the American South in the 1830s. By 1840, the American South was literally no longer a democracy. They still held elections. But the ballot boxes were routinely stuffed. The outcome of the elections were routinely ignored. Only a small number of people were allowed to vote. There were laws against debtors voting. Basically, you know, if you were a plantation owner, you could vote. 
And the South had come under the control of about a thousand families who controlled all of these southern states, these massive plantation owners. And they're the ones, their family members ran for political office. They're the ones who were the governors and the senators and whatnot. And it was no longer a democracy. The South had become a full-blown oligarchy. And anybody who promoted democracy in the South could, could expect to be imprisoned or even executed in the years, you know, in the, in the two decades running up to the American Civil War. So the Civil War was really not a democracy in the South that wanted to keep slaves versus a democracy in the North that didn't want slaves. It was an oligarchy in the South. A not, a, a, we had completely failed as a democracy, or they had, the South had, against an actual democracy in the North. And the democracy beat the oligarchy, which is pretty amazing. And in the book, I, I have a fairly long quote from Frederick Douglass where he talks about realizing as the, the man who owned him, in scare quotes, uh, well, actually, it was real at the time. The man who owned him, his, the, this man's wife taught Frederick Douglass how to read so that he could read the Bible. She was going to make a good Christian out of this heathen young man. And then the slave owner came in and started you know, ranting at his wife about how if, if you let these people learn to read, they're not, they're not fit to be slaves anymore. And young Fred, you know, he was literally seven years old at the time, and young Fred, Frederick Douglass writes in his first autobiography that that was when the light bulb went off. I mean, this is before light bulbs, but you get the metaphor. That was when he realized that the key to freedom, uh, keep in mind, this is a man who became one of America's greatest orators and you know, most extraordinary and prescient thinkers and greatest writers. That was when, it, when the light went off for him that he had to learn how to read. And he really learned how to read, <laughs> this guy. So, but, but the bottom line, we've had Big Brother in the United States before. We've had an experience with Big Brother. We had it with the, with the religious right up in Massachusetts and New Hampshire in the, in the 16 and 1700s. And, and in fact, it almost caused Massachusetts not to join the, the United States when, you know, the, the, when the Articles of Confederation were being proposed and then ultimately the Constitution, there was a big, because the, the, the preachers didn't want it. But then I also get into how corporate America has, is playing big brother on you and what they know about you. For example, I mean, this is just, this was research that was done about, you know, information that Facebook was compiling. Just based on clicking the like button and nothing else, just the like button, they could predict with 95% accuracy your ethnicity, 93% accuracy your gender, 88% your accuracy your sexual orientation, 85% accuracy your political views, 82% accuracy your religion, 73% uh, accuracy your nicotine usage, 70% your alcohol usage, 67% accuracy your relationship status, 65% your drug usage, and 60% uh, accuracy they could predict whether your parents were divorced. By the way that you type when you're online, yes, they are monitoring every single keystroke, but they're also monitoring the space between the keystrokes. By monitoring, this is called recognizing emotions from the rhythm of keyboard typing patterns. With 83% accuracy, they were able to predict your level of self-confidence. With 82% accuracy, your hesitance. With 83% accuracy, your nervousness. 77% accuracy, your relaxation, 88% your sadness, 84% accuracy whether you are tired or not. There are literally thousands of data points they have on people. Magazine catalog subscriptions, media channels used, preferred music genres, whether you're affluent or not, whether you drink wine or not, whether you're a credit card user, your credit worthiness, your net worth indicator, whether you follow the NBA, you know, whether you have licenses or registrations in individual states, hunting licenses, fishing licenses, whether you're a, you're a multilingual household, uh, where you're employed, who you're employed by, what you do, whether you're a single parent with children or not, whether you've ever had bankruptcies or criminal offenses. I mean, just it just goes on and on and on. Over-the-counter drug purchase, geriatric supplies, use of corrective lenses, allergy sufferer. Do you have an individual health plan? And they use this information and they sell this information. And the companies that buy it determine use this information to decide whether they're going to rent to you, whether they're going to give you a credit card, whether you're going to have to sit on hold for an hour or five minutes when you call uh, you know, to complain about a product or service or get help 
whether it's an airline or a bank or the store down the street. Um, one of the big retail chains in America, until they were busted for it, was using facial recognition where they would recognize you as a walk-in, put your name into one of these databases, come out with 10 or 15,000 data points about you, and that would inform them as to whether they needed to follow you around the store, whether they needed to help you, whether they needed to encourage you, whether they need to keep you out of the store, whether they need to refuse to allow you to return goods. I mean, it just goes on and on from there. Also in the book, there are extensive chapters about how uh, Russia took down Ukraine in 20, uh, 2015 and 2017 in uh, you know, kind of uh, retaliation for Ukraine's resistance with regard to Crimea. Um, just bricked computers across the country, uh, shut down gas stations, shut down banks, and, and how Iran tried to hack a dam here in Oregon that would have killed thousands of people. They, they got the wrong dam. They got this little dam in New York State instead um, you know, was just dammed a creek, and, and it was offline for maintenance when they tried to take it down. Donald Trump, you know, when, when, when all this stuff happened, Obama was president, and he created an office of cybersecurity within the White House. They operated out of the uh, old Eisenhower office building, which is right next door to the White House. Had a staff of 20, had a director. He reported directly to the president. Donald Trump came in. Russia starts, you know, Russia had been hacking the DNC on behalf of Trump. Uh, Russia was hacking our government agencies. So what did Donald Trump do? He shut down the agency. He fired Mr. Daniel, the, the head of the agency, and laid off all the people. And for four years, we had no cyber defense for all practical purposes. Chris Krebs, the, the, the remaining Pentagon-affiliated cyber defense guy, Trump fired him in his, in his last months in office. And what we learned was during the, the last two years of the Trump presidency, when we had basically no defense in our government offices against Russian hacking, that the Russians actually got inside the Treasury Department, actually got inside the computers of the Commerce Department. We don't know yet how far inside the Defense Department they got, and we're not sure that we've evicted them yet. Joe Biden is trying to rebuild our defenses, but Donald Trump just ripped it open and said to Putin, hey, here you go, come into the American government and take over our computers. It's amazing. I, we had Nicole Perlroth on this program last year when I was writing the book. I wanted to interview her, on, and her quotes are in the book, talking about how, just how bad this all was. Anyhow, the new book is The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. It just came out today. John in Westchester, New York, using the uh, Tom Hartman app. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Well, not too long ago, uh, Putin was talking about hypersonic uh, missiles. You're right. He uh, tried one out, didn't he? Didn't he demonstrate one? Yeah. I mean, is that still con considered conventional warfare? I, I mean, have is he no trying idea. To draw us in? Is he trying to draw us in and then for us to retaliate? I mean, would they have to refit ICBMs or what would we do at that point? Yeah. The, for people who don't know what we're talking about, hypersonic missiles are basically missiles that they fly up to really like super high altitudes, 60, 70, 80,000 feet. And then just they drop them like a stone with a little bit of power, a little bit of propulsion. And they come down so fast that they can evade any kind of anti-aircraft or anti-missile systems that exist right now. And if my understanding of that is correct, does that comport with yours, John? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I wonder if that's why he's trying to draw us into it. I don't think so. I think he just wanted Ukraine. I think he thought he could take it in three or four days, and the rest of the world would wring their hands like they did in 2014 when he took Crimea. And, uh, you know, he's the dog that caught the car and doesn't quite yeah. know what to do with it right now. Uh, I, I, you know, now that China is echoing the statements of, and I'm going to get into this in more detail, but China is echoing the lies that you're seeing on Fox News right now and that Putin is telling, which is that Ukraine has bioweapons labs. You know, what they have are public health labs. <laughs> just, just like, you know, it's just a normal kind of thing that, you know, literally every county in the United States has. But, you know, the fact that China is echoing this uh, tells me that we are already in something close to a world war. This is uh, not good news. Well, let us pray for peace. Yeah. Amen, John. Amen. All right. John, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Tony in Long Beach, California. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Good morning. A week ago, I shared something with you about a belief mechanism in the left hemisphere of the brain. I would just like to add something to that. 
John Eccles was the foremost brain scientist in the world in the 20th century. At a lecture, he was asked, do we possess free will? After a moment's thought, he said, yes, we possess free will, but we seldom use it. Hmm. When it comes to our study of humanity over the last five years, if we really want to understand, not justify, but understand the behavior of the Donald Trumps of the world, it would really help to understand the kind of things going on in the brain that form our humanity and the only way of altering those kinds of thoughts and behaviors is to find a way, based on how the brain works, to give ourselves a purpose. Everyone in life has a purpose, but brain scientists are telling us that we are not really giving ourselves purposes as parents, teachers, talk show hosts, athletes, engineers, etc., unless we understand these kind of mechanisms in the brain, a belief mechanism, the fact that our free will is limited, etc. So in terms of what's going on in Ukraine, this may seem like not so serious a subject, but if we really want to better our humanity, we really need to know better about this three-pound universe each and every human being is walking around with. Yeah, well said, Tony. Tony, thank you very much for the call. Yeah, free will is a huge topic. And back to our conversation about Julian Jaynes and uh, the, uh, the emergence of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is, this is something that uh, I find tremendously troubling. In today's New York Times, the headline is U.S. fights bioweapons disinformation pushed by Russia and China. Now, they kind of mention parenthetically in this article that it's also being pushed by Fox News. I would have put that at the top, but I get it. You know, Russia and China pushing this. They note this is uh, Edward Wong writing in uh, yesterday's New York Times. One of Russia's most incendiary disinformation campaigns ramped up days ago, he notes, falsely claiming, uh, its defense and foreign ministries issued statements, falsely claiming that the Pentagon was financing biological weapons labs in Ukraine. Not true. What you have across Ukraine, like you have across the United States, like you have across basically every other developed country in the world, you have it all across Russia, too, is the equivalent of county health department labs where when people come into a hospital and they're really, really sick and nobody's sure what it is, they swab their nose and they send the, the swab off to the local lab that does the work to figure out what's going on. And if it's a new virus that's popped up or if it's a virus that looks like it's going to, you know, like RSV or 
you know, a new flu or whatever, you know, they, they keep the samples of that so that, uh, you know, they can compare it with other future things. This is, this is public health. That's all it is. It's public health. It's a normal thing. In fact, it's something you want your county government to be doing. We've got a, a lab like this here in Multnomah County. There's a lab in, in Lane County. There's a lab at my, you know, one of my kids uh, worked with the people who ran the lab in, in another county here in Oregon. I, I don't want to completely out that, but um, it's just normal. But Russia says, oh no, those are bioweapons labs. And now the World Health Organization has said, yeah, if you've got any samples of local viruses that you've collected, you should destroy them, which just kind of adds fuel to the fire, like people going, what, they've got viruses? Well, yeah, I mean, as I described just a minute ago, you know, somebody comes into the hospital with an unknown disease and somebody's got to figure out what the hell that disease is. Well, that's what county labs do, you know? I mean, it's just bio labs do. But now the Chinese government has picked this up. Again, back to the New York Times, the Chi then Chinese diplomats and state media organizations repeated the conspiracy theory at news conferences in Beijing, in articles, and on official social media accounts. So now the Biden administration yesterday took the extraordinary step of calling on both Russia and China to quit the lies. It goes on, this is the New York Times, the Chinese government's promotion of Russian disinformation in the middle of the war has ignited concern among Western officials because of China's powerful diplomatic standing and extensive cyber capabilities. Analysts who study disinformation from the two nations say this was the first time they had seen this scale of amplification between Beijing and Moscow around a conspiracy theory. So is the deal like Beijing is saying, okay, Vlad, we'll let you take Ukraine. And when you're all done and the dust settles, we're going to take Taiwan and we'll back you and you back us. Is that what's going on here? I don't know, but uh, the New York Times goes on, or Eric Wong, Edward Wong in the New York Times goes on to write, Chinese officials have publicly sided with Russia throughout the war, denouncing the United States as the cause of the conflict. And then this is where it gets very bizarre. This is now like we're down maybe the 20th paragraph in the article. Variations of the lab conspiracy theory have been circulated in recent weeks by far-right American politi political figures and groups, including Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, and QAnon acolytes. Glenn Greenwald, the journalist critical of American military power and security agencies, has said the theory could be true. Even IYY, the Chinese dissident artist, has reposted the theory on Twitter. Well, of course, that would be you know, a function of living inside the Chinese echo chamber, as it were. But this is the headline in TASS News, quote, bioweapon labs in Ukraine prove U.S. criminal activity. As I said, these are the equivalent of your county health department labs. Later that evening, this is uh, Megan Ellis writing over at alternate.org. Later that evening, Fox News' Tucker Carlson said, quote, under oath in an open committee hearing, Victoria Nuland just confirmed that the Russian disinformation they've been telling us for days is a lie and a conspiracy theory and crazy and immoral is in fact totally and completely true. Well, no, that's not what she said. She said the exact opposite. Victoria Newland testified that these were basically like county health department labs. And, and Tucker Carlson said, you know, up is down, black is white, you know, red is green, whatever. Kessler, Glenn Kessler, who is uh, pointing this out, said, quote, Russian disinformation often begins with a speck of fact, which is then twisted into a full-blown conspiracy theory. He said the techniques makes it easier to spread and take root among the country's supporters. Note how quickly the party line uttered by the Russian foreign ministry was embraced by Tucker Carlson. And he noted that uh, back in 2018, Russia had tried, you know, a similar thing. Uh, he said the Russian charges that the Luger Center and other biological labs in the Caucasus and Central Asia were making banned bioweapons are unfounded. This is not the first time they've tried to roll this out, but this is the first time that Fox News has, has gone for it, hook, line, and sinker. It's just breathtaking. Andrew Weber, the former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs during the Obama administration, told Dan Abrams, uh, the guy who owns Mediaite, that the labs are research facilities just like the ones operated by county health departments, which is what, as I said, Victoria Newland testified before Congress. He said, quote, they, they function just like your county public health lab. They monitor for infectious disease outbreaks. They're sort of a smaller version of the CDC. And indeed, the United States government has been supporting these laboratories since 2005. 
so that in order that they have a better system of detecting and responding to infectious disease outbreaks. Abrams says, is there anything nefarious or secretive? Weber says, no. You know, these are they're internationally monitored. He said, these labs have culture collections from the endemic viruses and bacteria that are circulating in these areas. And then, you know, goes on to say, so because of fear of a Russian military attack, the prudent thing to do would be to destroy these culture collections, which, of course, is what gets Tucker Carlson going. He adds, this is KGB-style disinformation. Right. And uh, hang on just a second. I know I was supposed to talk about something else here. Let me get back to, to my notes. Oh, our geeky science. Yeah, I've got a, this is uh, downright spooky. It's not going to take very long. I'll pick up your phone calls in just a moment. This is in the New York Times. The headline, COVID may cause changes in the brain, new study finds. This was a study that was published in the journal Nature, this, uh, it's, which is about as high as you can get in terms of, you know, not just peer-reviewed, but high status, internationally recognized science publications. It was based on a study done of a half a million people in Britain and involved specifically the UK Biobank has the medical and other data for about a half a million people in Britain. 785 people in that cohort, in that group, had had MRIs that included their brains, or CT scans, I'm not sure which, which it was, but brain scans, basically, you know, to show how much brain matter you've got for a variety of reasons, you know, chronic headaches, you know, do they have epilepsy, whatever. I mean, there's a bunch of reasons why people get brain scans. So 785 of these people had brain scans before COVID. And they followed up with those 785 people three years later after they had had COVID. Now, they had a control group of uh, 380, I believe, people who also had COVID but didn't have their brain scanned before, but they did have their brain scanned after. So, you know, it's not quite apples to apples. But, but what they found with these 785 participants who had COVID, that they all experienced between two-tenths of a percent and two percent additional gray matter loss in different brain regions over the three years between the scans. They also lost overall more brain volume and showed more tissue damage in certain areas. Now, these were people who had COVID fairly early on in the pandemic. This study ended in April of last year. So most of these people, the vast majority of these people were not vaccinated. Nonetheless, in fact, I'll just quote this Pam Bellick writing for the New York Times. The effects may be particularly notable because the study involved people who were mildly affected by their initial COVID infection, not becoming sick enough to need hospitalization. There were 15 people who actually had to be hospitalized. Their brain atrophy was far worse. Amazing stuff and another good reason to do everything you can to avoid this disease or if you must be exposed to it, be well vaccinated and boosted. Mike in Bailey, Colorado. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I'm with you and pretty much most uh, uh, thinking uh, world about we need to get off of gasoline. But I'll be honest with you. I live in the mountains, and the electric cars are not an answer for me. The pickups, like Chevy's got one, Ford's going to be doing theirs. A great answer, but, you know, at the cost, I can't afford those. I happen to have a car that I have not paid a dime for gasoline in eight months. I converted a Subaru to run off of hydrogen. Really? I produce yeah, my are own. You, how are you generating the hydrogen? Are you, is it electrolysis? I produce my own. Yeah, and you do it? I have set up solar power and wind generators. Right. Uh, I have my well. I run it off solar. Right. I distill my own water. Uh, I do a double distillation. I have my own. Ele- I built my own electrolysis hydrogen electrolysis unit, right. and I do the proper filtering. And I'm compressing uh, my fuel. Now I'm are, limited. Now, hang on, just say here, my ability are, to it, travel long distances. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's very cool. Are you using a hydrogen fuel cell to convert that f- no. into electricity, or are you using combustion? No. Combustion. This is a, a 1987 Subaru GL10 uh, turbo, and it's an internal combustion engine. Uh, I'm getting ready to do a 1970 Cuda as well. Wow, a Barracuda. 
Oh, I remember yeah. those. Those are the, the old muscle cars. Oh, I got a 65 Marlin as well I'm going to do. Oh, wow. And I'm looking at converting a 69 BMW uh, motorcycle. So you're uh, you're like compressing it. and liquefying your hydrogen. So how much how how much you know what's your gas tank capacity as it were in your car it's and how long does it last you? See that's my problem. I can't get fuel range out of it because I'm limited in my uh, carrying capacity. Right. Uh, there's some new technologies. Uh, for instance, I'm looking at uh, hydrogen metal halide uh, cylinders instead of the compressed cylinders, mm -hmm. and uh, that should increase my mileage and safety va uh, factors. But there's another, there's some other companies that are developing a uh, it's a system to where you're storing hydrogen in a um, in a dry uh, environment. It's yeah. not compressed in yeah. any way. But you know, you know, one of the Japanese car up. makers, I don't recall if it was Toyota or Honda, but it was one of those two, um, is actually selling a hydrogen car. It's a fuel cell car. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's an electric car that uses hydrogen to make electricity um, for their domestic market. I don't know if you can buy them in the United States. Have you looked into that? I don't think they're available yet. Yeah. But I'm actually, I'm running straight up uh, internal combustion engines mm -hmm. off of hydrogen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had to do a lot of tweaking. Uh, my Subi is my experiment. Yeah. <laughs> and and be honest with you, I'm just driving it local. I yeah. can't do any distance. Uh, I get it. But uh, American Ingenuity, Mike, you're the uh, poster child for it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. What an amazing story. And making his own hydrogen with a solar cell on the roof. I mean, this is this is the future of America. We're all burning sunlight. Oil is just sunlight the plants captured 300 million years ago. Let's just capture it ourselves right now. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Deborah in Denver. Hey, Deborah, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm watching you on YouTube. Oh, thank you. I just want to ask you what you think about this idea. Why not have a non-NATO country do the do the no-fly zone, like Australia, China, Israel, um, India? If we call it a humanitarian effort, and that way this war continues, but. It's a humanitarian effort, right. and I mean, it would throw a wrench in Putin's plans, I yep. think. China has thrown in it? with Putin. They're now echoing this, this lie that the reason Putin is invading Ukraine is because there are bioweapons I know, but we there. can convince them. We can I, convince yeah, them to be I'm peacemakers. Not, I'm not holding you know? my breath. And India, you know, Modi in India is, is a wannabe fascist, and he's refusing to condemn Putin. Uh, of course, he's got his own problems in Kashmir. Well, we can't count on those two then. <laughs> no, we can't. Uh, what about and, anybody and, else? I mean, yeah, I, I'm, that's a humanitarian I, I, effort. You know, if anybody else tried to do something like that to enforce a no-fly zone, they would have to do it out of a NATO country. They'd have to base it out of a NATO country. And so I, I just don't think it's practical. I mean, I, you know, keep thinking, Deborah. You're, yeah, I, it's a great idea, but... Um, I don't see how to make it work, but uh, and the whole thing of a no-fly zone is somebody is going to have to come into conflict with Russia, and I'm telling you, he's not going to stop with Ukraine. If he successfully takes Ukraine, Moldova is next, and after Moldova, I think personally that he's going to go probably after Hungary because he thinks that Orban will go along with it, and he may be right. And then after Hungary, he goes after Latvia, and then Lithuania, and then Estonia, and then he's got the old Soviet states back. 
oh, and Poland. Let's not forget Poland. But I really think that's what that's what's going on. Deborah, thank you. What do you, you think the, would be a good pro for that, though? Uh, something that would help in that effort. I don't know. I, I mean, we are on the verge of World War III here, and, 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 and I, there are people, rational, reasonable people, who are arguing we are already in World War III right now. And, you know, it just hasn't gotten, it hasn't extended itself beyond the borders of Ukraine, but it will. And I'm not quite that freaked out or uh, pessimistic or whatever the, the appropriate word is, but I certainly see the logic of it. I, I totally get it. And uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's, okay. a, it's a tough one. It's a real tough one. Deborah, thank you so much for the call. And keep thinking. <laughs> keep thinking. We need good thinkers like you, Deborah. How do you think this thing is going to play out? Uh, do, do you think we're in World War III? How? I just don't see an out for Putin right now. And, I, I, and that concerns You're me. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Frankly, it looks to me increasingly like the only out is going to be for Putin's own people to uh, basically replace him with somebody else. Let me just pull up TrumpDeathToll.org. 956,621 dead Americans from COVID now. That doesn't begin to scratch the surface, though, of the number of people who have been disabled by COVID. We're just now starting to get into this and touched by COVID in so many other ways as well. On the line with us is uh, Kristen Arkiza the co-founder and chief activist of MarkedByCovid.com. She's the daughter of Mark Anthony Arkiza, who died from COVID-19 this past June, and his only underlying condition was believing Donald Trump. Kristen, tell us your story and, and about MarkedByCovid.com. What provoked you to start this organization, and what are you all up to? What are you doing? Thanks for having me on, Tom. Marked by COVID, I started eight days after my dad passed from COVID-19. Mm. And the reason why I started it is because not only was I experiencing so much grief and sadness at his passing, but I was angry and upset that he um, got sick in the first place. He was a supporter, as you, uh, you mentioned, of President Trump. And whenever the state of Arizona, where he lived, reopened, the president and the governor at that time, Doug Ducey, said it was fine. It was okay. He encouraged people to go out and, you know, have dinner with friends. And we now know that that wasn't safe to do so. And as a result, my dad got sick and tragically passed away. So Mark by COVID is now working to not only connect families who have lost loved ones to provide support and spaces for grieving, but we're also working towards accountability. We're calling for a commission, a truth commission. We're calling for permanent memorials, uh, like COVID Memorial Day and also physical memorials, as well as ensuring that all lessons learned from this tragedy are codified and passed on to future generations. Over 150 cities across the country have issued proclamations and resolutions noting that. And we also have a, a resolutions in both the Senate and the House. So this is gaining momentum and speed. It's not a question of if, but when. I recall when there were hundreds of thousands of little white flags on the National Mall, you know, each one after a person who had died of COVID. Is there any motion movement toward creating, you know, kind of the equivalent of a war memorial? I mean, more people have died from COVID than died in Vietnam. And, and in fact, I think more, more Americans have died from COVID than have died in all of our wars. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. And so uh, it destroys my heart thinking about that reality that we've lost a million, nearly a million people already here in the U.S., a scale that is unimaginable. It's a million legacies that we are working to preserve and yes, we are leading also the charge in a permanent memorial. And we're imagining not only a memorial in Washington, D.C., where um, you know we can gather and be together, but also memorials in places all across the country, at the city level, at the state level. We want to make sure that this pandemic is not forgotten. No. We forgot the 1918 pandemic. We cannot let this pandemic go pushed into the memory hole. Yeah, I, President Wilson uh, literally never mentioned flu <laughs> during 1918, <laughs> 1919, 1920, even though he got it himself. This has not been memorialized by the House and Senate as an official 
federal holiday, uh, whether it's a, a take time off from work holiday or just, you know, one of those days that we note, uh, you know, Valentine's Day kind of holiday, obviously a very different paradigm, but, you know, not a day that you typically get off work, but everybody knows about. Where is that effort at? Right now, the resolutions are in the House and in the Senate in their respective committees. So we've gotten them introduced and we're working to get a vote and um, consideration on the floor. Um, but that's going to take more people continuing not only to you know, observe COVID Memorial Day, but us talking to our elected officials throughout the course of the year, which we've been mobilizing people to do. Having folks sit down over a Zoom meeting or even in person in some instances with their lawmakers to share their stories and to share why this is so important. And this is important not just to folks who have lost a loved one or people living with long COVID, the incredibly huge amount of folks who are going to be disabled for quite some time. This is also important for all of us to have a space and time to reflect upon the last two years of what we've been through together, to have that collective memory, but that committing not to forget is going to ensure that we're better prepared for any future crises that come our way. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really important point. Do we have? And I realize you're not a, a physician or a medical expert, but do we have? To, but you are, you know, kind of in the middle of this uh, this storm um, uh, in terms of information and publicity. Do we have any good sense yet how many millions of Americans are experiencing lingering symptoms of COVID or have been disabled by COVID and what the principal disabilities are? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that. And um, conservative estimates are that 10% of people who had COVID at one point or another will have long COVID. And the more generous estimates are upwards to 33%. Wow. And it's really important that we note that th these are folks that sometimes only had acute, very acute COVID, did not have any symptoms, but later developed post-viral illness. And the whole kaleidoscope of symptoms that come with long COVID range from malaise and extreme fatigue to uh, cognitive functions and abilities to uh, perform um, the way that you did in a workplace, an ability to hold multiple pieces of information in your brain at the same time to a whole host of other issues. And yeah. that's also not counting the people who were discharged from COVID, do not have long COVID, but have long-term health disability because they were on a ventilator for 60 days and their lungs are forever damaged. So we know that there are at least 10 million additional folks in these two categories, but upwards of probably more like 30 million people who are disabled as a result of getting COVID-19. We're talking with Kristen Orkiza, the co-founder and chief activist of MarkedByCOVID.com. I looked over your website and, you know, it seems fairly nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. Your dad was killed by Donald Trump's lies, essentially. My word's not yours, but, you know, I know people who are in that situation. Is there any effort to memorialize? I mean, you know, we have 4% of the world's population, and we had something like 20% of the world's COVID deaths. And COVID, in large part because of the way that the Trump administration chose to respond to this by minimizing it and playing it down because Trump was afraid that if the economy went down, he would lose the election, which, of course, is exactly what happened. Is there any attempt to tell the, the truthful story of this? I mean, like, like the Holocaust memorials do? Or are you trying to make an attempt to avoid the politics altogether? Oh, my goodness. This is all about stopping revisionist history. This is about telling the truth. And, you know, to your point, I... You know, we're, we are absolutely a nonpartisan group, but that doesn't mean that we shy away from speaking our truth. And yeah. so in my instance, I believe that the president of the United States, Tom, uh, Donald Trump, the former president, was directly responsible not only for my dad's death, but millions of additional individuals. And, um, you know, to, to thinking about, you know, how do we capture that? I look more at the lynching museum in Alabama, the Holocaust museums, 
as examples of ways in which we can um, really remember and not only the good parts of our history, but also the, the more challenging parts of our history. And that's exactly what this episode has been for folks, whether or not you've lost a loved one. There's been nothing really great, unless you're a billionaire, about the last few years. Yeah. And we've got to remember that. We cannot sugarcoat it. This cannot be like a Christopher Columbus sail the ocean blue moment. This has to be the real truth codified. Yeah, I'm, w- I'm completely with you. Kristen Urquiza, the uh, co-founder and chief activist at MarkedByCOVID.com. Check it out. It's also the Twitter handle, MarkedByCOVID, and K-D-U-R-Q-U-I-Z-A on Twitter as well. Kristen, thanks so much for dropping by. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Great meeting you. We'll be back. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history by John M. Barry. This is from the prologue. The Great War had brought Paul Lewis into the Navy in 1918 as a lieutenant commander, but he never seemed quite at ease in his uniform. He never seemed to fit quite right or sit quite right, and he was often flustered and failed to respond properly when sailors saluted him. Yet he was every bit a warrior, and he hunted death. When he found it, he confronted it, challenged it, tried to pin it in place like a lepidopterist pinning down a butterfly so he could then dissect it piece by piece, analyze it, and find a way to confound it. He did so often enough that the risks he took became routine. Still, death had never appeared to him as it did now in mid-September 1918. Row after row of men confronted him in the hospital ward, many of them bloody and dying in some new and awful way. He had been called there to solve a mystery that dumbfounded the clinicians. For Lewis was a scientist. Although a physician, he had never practiced on a patient. Instead, a member of the very first generation of American medical scientists, he had spent his life in a laboratory. He had already built an extraordinary career an international reputation, and he was still young enough to, just, to be seen as just coming into his prime. A decade earlier, working with his mentor at the Rockefeller Institute in New York City, he had proved that a virus caused polio, a discovery that is still, still considered a landmark achievement in the history of virology. He had then developed a vaccine that protected monkeys from polio with nearly 100% effectiveness. That and other successes won him the position of founding head of the Henry Phipps Institute, a research institute associated with the University of Pennsylvania. And in 1917, he had been chosen for the great honor of giving the annual Harvey Lecture. It seemed only the first of many honors that would come his way. Today, the children of two prominent scientists who knew him then and who crossed paths with many Nobel laureates say their father each told them that Lewis was the smartest man he had ever met. The clinicians now looked to him to explain the violent symptoms these sailors presented. The blood that covered so many of them did not come from wounds, at least not from steel or explosives that had torn away limbs. Most of the blood had come from nosebleeds. A few sailors had coughed the blood up. Others had bled from their ears. Some coughed so hard that autopsies would later show they had torn apart abdominal muscles and rib cartilage. And many of the men writhed in agony or delirium. Nearly all of those able to communicate complained of headache, as if someone were hammering a wedge into their skulls just behind the eyes, and body aches so intense they felt like their bones were breaking. A few were vomiting. Finally, the skin of some of the sailors had turned unusual colors. Some showed just a tinge of blue around their lips or fingertips, but a few looked so dark one could not easily tell if they were Caucasian or Negro. 
they looked almost black. Only once had Lewis seen a disease that in any way resembled this. Two months earlier, members of the crew of a British ship had been taken by ambulance from a sealed dock to another Philadelphia hospital and placed in isolation. There, many of that crew had died. At autopsy, their lung had resembled those of men who had died from poison gas or pneumonic plague, a more virulent form of bubonic plague. Whatever these crewmen had had, it had not spread. No one else had gotten sick. But the men in the wards now not only puzzled Lewis, they had to have chilled him with fear also. Fear both for himself and for what this disease could do. For whatever was attacking these sailors was not only spreading, it was spreading explosively. And it was spreading despite a well-planned, concerted effort to contain it. This same disease had erupted 10 days earlier at a Navy facility in Boston. Lieutenant Commander Milton Rosano of the Chelsea Naval Hospital there had certainly communicated to Lewis, whom he knew well, about it. Rosano, too, was a scientist who had chosen to leave a Harvard professorship for the Navy when the United States entered the war. And his textbook on public health was called The Bible by both Army and Navy doctors. Philadelphia Navy authorities had taken Rossino's warning seriously, especially since a detachment of sailors had just arrived from Boston and they had made preparations to isolate any ill sailors should an outbreak occur. They had been confident that isolation could contain it. Yet four days after the Boston detachment arrived, 19 sailors in Philadelphia were hospitalized with what looked like the same disease. Despite their immediate isolation and that of everyone with whom they had contact, 87 sailors were hospitalized the next day. They and their contacts were again isolated, but two days later, 600 men were hospitalized with this strange disease. The hospital ran out of empty beds and the hospital staff began falling ill. The Navy then began sending hundreds more sick sailors to a civilian hospital. And sailors and civilian workers were moving constantly between the city and army facilities as they had in Boston. Meanwhile, personnel from Boston and now Philadelphia had been and were being sent throughout the country as well. That had to chill Lewis too. Lewis had visited the first patients, taken blood, urine, and sputum samples, done nasal washings, and swabbed their throats. The book, The Great Influenza by John M. Berry. And welcome back, Beverly in Mexico. Hey, Beverly, what's up? Thanks for watching hey, us on Free Speech TV. Yes, uh, I wanted to bring up two ways to address the gas prices, the impact on our families. Mm -hmm. We have no control over OPEC. We had no control over COVID. And it's hurting us, the people. We passed the relief funds for COVID and sent money directly to families. And I don't know why... We can't pass a relief fund check for the gasoline. Republicans are running their campaigns bashing Biden for gas prices. It's going to cost $2,000 a year. They should pass a 2000 relief check fund to all Americans. And I don't know how Republicans could vote no on it since they're the ones touting it. Yeah, I mean, the easy way to do it that would not be used by many people be just because it would involve jumping through a few hoops, but the easy way to do it would be to add your gasoline expenses to make those deductible from your income taxes or yeah, deductible from your great. income. I mean, so, if, so if somebody spends you know, $500 a year on gasoline, they, they get a $500 reduction in their, in their taxable income. And that's a great idea, too. We just need to show Biden is doing something to help us, the people, just like he did with uh, COVID. Yeah. And another thing maybe they could do, which would be more complicated probably, is uh, to put a moratorium or stop all taxes at the pump from every state. So states can't tax your gas, and that would drop the price per yeah, gallon. I don't think uh, the federal uh, government can regulate state gas taxes and the federal tax is not that much my recollection is it's less than a dime but i could be real wrong on that i mean it's been years since i've had a you know an informed conversation with anybody about the gas tax but i think that most of the most of the gas tax that shows up at the pump is state taxes and i don't think the federal government can do anything about that 
But well, I agree. That's why I say it would be more difficult. But maybe governors of these states could start doing it on their own and at least help their state and drop it off because yeah. we have just passed the infrastructure bill. A lot of that money can go to make up for the loss of those taxes for our roads. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I do think, Beverly, your idea about dealing with this at the level of taxes is a really good idea. And maybe there's something I'm missing here. I don't know why Democrats haven't already rolled out something like this, or maybe they are, and it just hasn't gotten any press. I mean, you know, right now, for example, if you pay mortgage interest on your home, that you can deduct that from your income, from your taxable income. It reduces your income taxes, or it reduces your, you know, your, your income that is subject to taxation. Why not simply say, and it used to be before Reagan, before 1983, you could deduct the, you know, the, the interest you paid on your credit cards and on your car loans. So, you know, that's gone. But why not make the cost of gasoline tax deductible? Why not, why not say that, you know, so somebody spends $2,000 a year on, on, gas, on gasoline, all they have to do is keep the receipts at the end of the year. They just, you know, on line whatever it is on their IRS form, they say I spent $2,000 on gasoline, so their income goes from, you know, $36,000 a year down to $34,000 a year, this, tax, this subject income tax or whatever it may be. That's the way I would do it. Beverly, thank you for the call. We'll be back. Doug in Portland, Oregon, watching us on Twitter. Hey, Doug, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I had a comment about marketing and messaging between the right and the left. And just sort of a question for you, a theory. And it goes like this. All Americans really know 100% is what experience they have personally. Everything about why and how and all the background comes from the media and politicians. And the right pitches to a gut feeling in Americans, and the left, typically, and Democrats, pitch to a more articulate, intellectual, head, you know, into your brain kind of argument. And I wonder if you agree, and I wonder what could be done about it. I do. And, you know, number one, Democrats need to get better at messaging. But number two, the other big problem, Doug, and, uh, you know, use any search engine, Google, DuckDuckGo, Bing, whatever, and just plug in any issue that's controversial or, or even remotely controversial, right to work, for example, you know, or uh, tariffs or anything like that. And what you will find is that most cases, eight out of 10 of the top sites that come back at you are conservative websites. And many of them are conservative websites you'd never even heard of. These sites that you've got right-wing billionaires who are, who are financing literally hundreds of these right-wing sites that just regurgitate things that come out of Fox News or come out of other right-wing think tanks. You'll find right. the same article in, in 15 or 20 different publications and it totally pollutes your ability to find facts and it makes it very difficult. And, and by the way, they're doing this all over uh, Wikipedia as well. It makes it very difficult for like kids doing term papers and things to even find out what's actually going on in the world. So I think it's, it's much bigger than what you're describing, Doug, but I think your, your, your sense of the way that this is being done Spot on. Thank you very much for the call. Dane in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Dane, what's on your mind? Hey, nice talking to you again. Thanks for picking it up. Uh, I was going to, it's just a little bit before your time, but uh, during World War II, they put price controls on things. Now, yeah, why, Nixon tried that too in 73. Well, I didn't, didn't call that. But anyway, and they had it on gasoline for a long time. I can remember that as a kid. So why the hell doesn't our president, you know, why doesn't he say, hey, at least threaten the, uh, uh, these? Well, two reasons. Number one, during World War II, the price controls were widely supported across America because we were fighting a war for the survival of democracy in the world. And we, and we had the sense that if we didn't stop Tojo and Hitler, particularly after they bombed us at Pearl Harbor, or Tojo did, that America was next. So there was a, a complete support for it. Secondly, once those price controls were, were lifted, prices popped. Um, you know, you can't, I mean, it's like trying to hold the, the lid, you know, on a, on a pot of boiling water. You, you just can't control prices. And that's what happened to Nixon, too. When, when, he, put, when he imposed price controls, what it did was it, it drove down supply. And you ended up with these, you know, long gasoline lines. So I think those are the, the, the main two reasons why it's not being promoted and, and why it, it wouldn't work. Dane, thanks a lot for the call. Lawrence in Berkeley. Hey, Lawrence, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Well, your calls are so great. I hope I could do as well. Thanks. We have less I than a minute. Say, 
Yeah, the way to make sure the Democrats win elections for 20 years, as they did starting with FDR, is to organize unions so we have four or five times as many union members as they did in um, in the 30s in the CIO. But it has to be done differently because now 80% of all jobs are in the service sector and they deal with people in the neighborhood, people in communities. So union organizers also have to be community organizers. That's a good point, Lawrence. And I salute the idea and completely agree with you. We need more unions. One of the reasons why I said, you know, just try Googling right to work, it'll blow your mind. Because this is, you know, basically the anti-union shtick that Taft-Hartley brought us in 1947 and now has spread across 27 states. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back same bat time, same bat, I think I said that yesterday, same bat channel. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So please get out there, get active, tag your it. There's so much you can do. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 